I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Anawan man from the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales. The uncurated podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present and the 60,000 years of forgotten stories they've told of country. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. How much do you know about Chinese history in Australia? I don't know anything, I don't think. A little bit. I went to the museum in town uh, within the last year, so I guess I can remember some things from that. Just about it going back to the goldfield era and people who stayed on after that and became part of Australian life and culture. But yeah, I don't know any of that history very well. Yeah, not much. I know a little bit. I think there was a wave of Chinese immigration to Australia at some point. I mean, there would have been in his in you know recent history, but I don't know the dates or anything. Um, not much. All I know is that during the gold rush, Chinese families came over because they wanted to get gold and stuff, and that kind of led to like Chinese people settling here. As a kid. I remember driving through regional Victoria on family road trips and stopping off at different towns to stretch our legs or use the public toilet. No matter how small the town was, there were always the same three things in the centre of it. A bakery, a chip shop and a Chinese restaurant. I never really questioned the presence of a Chinese restaurant in the middle of a traditional settler country town or thought there was anything too special about it. I certainly didn't realise that they represented a Chinese community that had been here in Victoria for nearly as long as British colonial settlers. I'm Sasha Gadamire and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the University of Melbourne. Every week, we take an object buried in the university's 12 museums and uncover its hidden history. In this episode, Caitlin Dwan maps the journey of Australia's Chinese diaspora from the past to the present. I'm looking at this piece of paper on my laptop. It is a pencil sketch by the artist Percy Lindsay, drawn in 1893. It's a picture of the camp where Chinese miners lived in Krizik, 120 kilometers northwest of Melbourne. It was drawn at a time when tens of thousands of Chinese miners were flocking to make money in Australia's gold rush. Percy and his family, the Lindsay family, lived near Creswick or lived in Creswick and knew this Chinese area of town very well. That's Alyssa Bunbury, the curator of the Greenweight Collection. She's telling me about the Chinese camp in the sketch. By this stage, it was uh, 40, heading on toward 50 years old since the gold rush started in the 1850s. Uh, And you can see in this image that Things are fairly run down, maybe were built pretty ad hoc when they were first built. Looking at the sketch, it doesn't really have anything that marks it out as a Chinese camp. The houses are just wooden cabins. They don't look like Chinese architecture. The people in it are all wearing suits and hats. You can't see their faces. I'm a Chinese migrant myself and I came here five years ago. I guess I was expecting to see something more familiar, something more... Chinese? Alyssa says the sketch was done for an oil painting which is now at the Gallery of Ballarat, 
about 115 kilometers west of Melbourne. I'm curious to see how it turned out, so I decided to take a road trip to Ballarat. After almost two hours of driving, I arrive at the Ballarat Art Gallery. It's a two-story building. On the first level, I see work done by Lionel Lindsay, Percy's more famous brother. In fact, five of the ten Lindsay family siblings were artists. Percy was the least successful, according to Alyssa Bunbury, less known even than his sister Ruby. But Percy is the the least known of them. I, I, I actually think even possibly even less known than Ruby nowadays. When women artists are starting to get the, the attention they deserve, there's a whole room expecting work by the famous Lindsay family siblings. I'm looking for Percy's work, but I don't see any words in the room. However, I'd ask to see the oil painting of Chinese Camp, and the museum had promised to show it to me. I'm taken to a storage room on the second floor. The moment I walk in, I smell a mixture of oil and pigment. It smells like antiques. The same fragrance as a vintage store. This small room is piled up with many black suitcases, each with a full of canvases. It's my first time in a storage room. To me. It almost feels like the story of Chinese people in Australia gold rush and the life of Percy Lindsay have been hidden away in a small suitcase. But the painting is out in open, lying on the table. It's a painting based on that sketch. When I look closely, I spot the differences straight away. There is a Chinese man in the center of the picture. His hair is a long plait. He's wearing a broad-brimmed can hat, and swinging from his shoulder is something so familiar to me—a bamboo pole with a basket on either end. The way he's dressed and his baskets remind me of the mountainous city that is my home, Chongqing, China. There, those baskets are still used by people who we call the "Shantan Bambandu." In English, it's the Bamban Army. They carry things up and down the hilly streets, in those baskets, dangling on bamboo poles. They are the hardest-working, lowest-paid people in the city. I'm struck by seeing a member of Bamban Army in Ballarat, Australia, a hundred and thirty years after he was painted. Going to that room makes me feel really sad. Percy Lindsay, just like the Chinese history back in the Gold Rush era. Both seem to have been hidden from view. He's a forgotten one in the family. Certain histories are fully displayed, others less so. I want to find out more about that Chinese history in Australia, and so I seek out history and heritage consultant Janita Quag. So, in the first place, Chinese began coming to、um, Victoria. Coming from Hong Kong to Victoria,、uh, at its peak, there were about forty thousand Chinese gold seekers who, who went to Victoria after eighteen fifty-four. So, in eighteen fifty-five, Victoria introduced first legislation to restrict Chinese immigration, 
and after that, Chinese began instead um, landing in South Australia in the Port of Rhode and then walking across South Australia to the Victorian goldfields. And uh, South Australia subsequently introduced its own restrictive legislation. Uh, so around the time of 1856, 1857, and peaking in 1858, Chinese gold seekers began landing in, at Sydney and then walking across the mountains to the New South Wales gold fields. So at its peak um, in the 1861 census, there were about 13,000 Chinese in, in New South Wales. Actually, probably the number peaked in 1858 when there were about 17,000. And, you know, possibly more because the gold fields were so spread out with quite inaccessible creeks and gullies and so on, it would have been quite hard for the census collector to actually find everyone, especially if they didn't want to be found. After a long journey to Victoria, Chinese gold miners finally arrived in Victoria, Ballarat and Bendigal. However, their presence was met with violence from the Australians. One reason was the success of the Chinese miners. So they were experienced miners and they were organised and they worked in large groups, very coordinated, so they were successful at mining. And so the European miners who tended to work more as individuals and not as large groups were envious of the success of the Chinese miners. So uh, there were a series of riots or incidents where Chinese were driven off the gold fields. And the, the worst of these, or the, the most well-known of uh, the Buckland Valley riots in uh, 1857 in Victoria, and also the Landing Flat riots in 1860, 1861 in, in New South Wales. There were other such riots elsewhere. You know, there was lots of interaction between Chinese and Europeans. Uh, so I think that in the past, uh, there's been a tendency to look at the Chinese as victims and um, to not consider their their agency, and also not consider what successful gold miners they were. I walk out the library and stand on the rainy street. The rain has cleared Ballarat Street. As I look around, I notice that there don't seem to be any Chinese grocery stores or restaurants. It's almost as if the history of Chinese gold rush has been washed out along with the rain. I wonder what has happened to the Chinese people living in Ballarat now. Using Google Map, I find a Chinese library. However, it's blocked. There's only a phone number on a piece of paper on the door. So, I've written the number. On the other end of the line is Charles Jan. He's a committee member of the Chinese Library. He's also the president of Chinese Australian Culture Society of Ballarat. He's been living there for more than 25 years. When talking about Chinese history in Ballarat, he tells me he's in a fight to save Chinese heritage in the form of a century-old building called Victory House. There was uh, a Chinese uh, heritage house on Man Road. The house has more than 100 years history and the Chinese family been living there since 1904-05 until 2007. And that house has a very significant uh, heritage with the Chinese, also with the Chinese gold mine. Uh, it's called a Wai Ha Canton Mine. 
the landlord wanted to demolish the Victory House to construct four new dwellings. The city council at first voted against protecting it, but Charles was still fighting for all his worth. At this stage, we are in the fighting, and、uh, I'm in the old way, and Harry、uh, contact the Heritage Victoria, Heritage Victoria Council, National Trust Victoria, recap, and、uh, possible state government interview, and、uh, also the community support, also with the community petitions, we want to save that house. So that's to us. It's very special because at the moment Ballarat is not like a Bendigo, not like a Melbourne. Ballarat has nothing, as in real, to say Chinese, and unless you go to cemetery, <laughs> that's the only place you get to say real Chinese heritage. So this is one we need to do something. We need to say. As I speak to Charles. I worry about how easy it is for paintings to be rolled up, for buildings to be knocked down, for Australian Chinese stories to just disappear, and I worry that perhaps one day my own story will be forgotten too. It's clear that to Charles, the fight is for more than just a building. It's a fight for Australian Chinese history, a fight to be remembered. A fight for equality. This is what I'm talking about: not verbally, not physically abuse, but systematically. It's something in some people's mind. Chinese are still not equally as like any other citizens. So, to me, you know, it's something still there. That's why we need to stand up. We need to fight for. We need to preserve our rights. Just before the story went to air, I called Charles for an update. He had news for me. He told me that after working with different communities to raise the money, he was able to buy Victory House to save it. It cost him five hundred sixty thousand Australian dollars. Now they're planning to use it to build a Chinese Australian culture center. It will be home for those Australian Chinese history he featured could be lost. So let the people understand it is hundred fifty, hundred sixty, or two hundred years ago when Chinese came to, came to this country. Obviously, they were looking for the fortunes. They were looking for opportunities. But now we are here. We would like to provide more opportunity, something to others, and then let people understand is Chinese community is the part of this society as well. And we do have our culture difference. We do have our language. We do have our customs. But we are still part of this society. We are part of Australia. As a Chinese migrant and a journalist, I feel lucky that Percy Lynch's picture led me to a whole other story—a hidden Chinese history that goes all the way up to the modern day. I didn't expect to feel so emotional, and my eyes are brimming with tears of joy. It might seem like I found the story, but 
I think the story from me. Yes, houses might be knocked down and history might be forgotten, but with our efforts, we can bring these hidden histories back into the light and continue to write a new chapter of our own stories here. That story was reported by Caitlin Duan and co-produced by Isabella Vagnoni. The sound mixing is also by Isabella Vagnoni. The next episode will be our last, where we return back to campus at the University of Melbourne to hear the story of a pioneer woman scientist. She certainly was a trailblazer, and without people like her, the School of Physics, well, we would have got dragged into the 20th century. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Sasha Gadamaya, the host of Season 2. Our series producer is Praline Kera. Sound design is by Sean Roos and Thomas Phillips. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. Special thanks to everyone at the Museums and Collections Department at the University of Melbourne. This is a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism. 